Well, please open your Bibles to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Uh, tonight we're going to be focusing our attention on the first three verses, but uh, let's begin by reading through the whole chapter together. And uh, picking up at the end of chapter 12, Paul says, And I will show you a still more excellent way. And that excellent way is expounded then in chapter 13, where he says this. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I'm nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. Well, this is a passage that um, many people will be familiar with, even outside of the kingdom, because it's the go-to passage read out at weddings, isn't it? And for good reason, too. Uh, This is such an incredibly rich passage, so deep and thought-provoking. So challenging to the hearts of anyone who reads it seriously. Because if we seriously look at this passage, it, it really is quite challenging. It says love is patient. Are we patient? It says love is kind. But is that the case with us? <coughs> Goodness me, I can lead the service when it comes to preaching. <coughs> Not one cough before. But... Love rejoices with the truth, but uh, do we always do that? Now, these are certainly pertinent questions uh, in a marriage, aren't they? However, while the passage definitely has application to marriage, indeed it has application to all spheres of life, uh, the direct application that Paul is making is in relation to the life of the church, the body of Christ. You see, 1 Corinthians 13 is wedged between two full chapters on the nature of spiritual gifts, and their correct use. The Corinthian church had many problems. There were horrible divisions. There was outrageous sexual immorality going on in their midst. Uh, There were Christians taking other Christians to court. And there were issues with the celebration of the Lord's Supper. And then we come to chapters 12 to 14, where we see that they were a very blessed church with the variety of spiritual gifts experienced in their midst. However, they were using those gifts selfishly, using them to edify themselves rather than edify the church. 
They may have been gifted, but they were not acting out of love. In John chapter 13, Jesus declared to the apostles in the upper room, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. So love is to characterise the believers' lives together. We've been united to Christ uh, by God's grace, and we are indwelt by the same Holy Spirit. And since God is love, it's not some sort of abstract concept, God is love, and Jesus is God the Son, well, it makes perfect sense that the disciples of Christ should be known by their love for one another. And while our love for others is not the means of our salvation, it is necessary evidence of our salvation. It is the fruit. Because how can we believe ourselves that we belong to Christ, let alone demonstrate that to the world if there's no love in our lives for Christ's people? Now, that's not to dismiss either the, the reality that issues will arise in the church <clears throat> before the day of Christ's return. But even there, a believer's love is seen in their willingness to follow through on Scripture's commands, God's words to us, and how we work through conflict in love to the good of our brothers and sisters in Christ and to the glory of God. I've broken down this passage into three sections. Verses 1 to 3 is the excellence of love. Verses 4 to 7 is the elements of love. And verses 8 to 13 speaks of the endurance of love. And in the following evening services over the next couple of months. We're going to spend one night each on sections two and three. But tonight, as I've said already, we're going to be just addressing this first section. And so tonight's message is entitled The Excellence of Love. And there are four aspects that I think we can easily draw out from this text. And the first is to see love's indispensability. So point one, the excellence of love is recognised by its indispensability. We can see that easily when Paul says that without love he is but a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Without love he is nothing. Without love he will gain nothing. Love is more than simply important, it is indispensable. It's a necessity, it is unequivocally essential. Thinking about it mathematically, if, if we possess the greatest of all the spiritual gifts, but love is not part of the equation, then we have what amounts to absolutely zero. If there's no love for God in our hearts, which then expresses itself in no love for others, and it makes no difference what we do. It does not count for anything. Without love, our words have no real meaning. Without love, our understanding equates to nothing. Without love, our sacrifices gain for us nothing. Think of Judas Iscariot. (coughs) Our Lord empowered him to preach and to authenticate the message by performing miraculous signs. 
We're told in Matthew 10, verse 8, that this man was commissioned by Christ, along with the other apostles, to heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. But the work that he did in Jesus' name gained nothing for himself. For Judas had no genuine affection in his heart for Christ or for his people. And we should take warning from Judas's life because if he was empowered to do those extraordinary feats and yet still entered hell, then how much less so of a chance do we have? If our works are less extraordinary than what Judas accomplished, but like Judas, we have no love for the Lord and no love for others. Marvellous gifts are not the vital piece in our lives. We see another example of this in the Old Testament book of Numbers. In chapters 22 to 24, we read of the pagan prophet Balaam, whom God empowered to prophesy blessing over the people of Israel against the desire of Balak, king of Moab. And yet, Balaam remained an unregenerate sinner. And so, while God works supernaturally through him, it did not mean that God had worked supernaturally in him to renew him, that he might turn to God with love and affection and express genuine love to others. Now, Judas and Balaam were granted these abilities because God, in his sovereign wisdom, used them to glorify his own name. But apparently, they were not the only ones that experienced miraculous gifts from the Spirit without regeneration from the Spirit. Listen to these words from Jesus in Matthew 7. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, (coughs) Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. To the end of the first century, it seems there were others were not recorded in scripture who performed miracles in Christ's name but just like Judas that had no bearing on their salvation none at all and if that's the case we ask how hopeless is it then that there are those falsely claiming today to be doing those things in Jesus name who were not the genuine article but their motivations nevertheless matching those of Judas and Balaam having no love for God or for others but simply lining their pockets by selling false hope to needy people. And yet, for true believers, we also recognise that we should never hang our hats solely on the gifts that God has granted us. In Luke 10, we're told about the 72 men whom Jesus commissioned to preach and perform miraculous signs in the towns where Jesus was about to go. And when those disciples came back, we read this uh, from chapter 10 and verses 17 to 20 the 72 returned with joy saying lord even the demons are subject to us in your name he said to them i saw satan fall like lightning from heaven behold i have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you nevertheless do not rejoice in this that the spirits are subject to you but rejoice that your names are written in heaven The gifts that God grants are not the most important thing. Love is the most important thing. 
Love for God and love for others. Our work in the gospel must be grounded and guided by love. In his first letter, the Apostle John lays out numerous tests by which a person can gain assurance of their faith. One of those is that true believers love their fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Listen to these verses from 1 John, chapter 2, verse 9. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Chapter 3, verse 10. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Chapter 4, verses 7 to 8. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. Chapter 5, verse 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. But it's more than love for believers too. Jesus commands us to love our enemies. And we admit that even in the church sometimes it feels like we have enemies. But even then, we're called to love. In Luke 6, 27 to 28, Jesus declared, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. We can do all manner of service in Jesus' name, but if at the heart of it, our motivation does not stem from love, if our actions are not controlled by love, then we are wasting our time. When Paul charged Timothy to stop false teachers in the Ephesian church, he said that love was the driving purpose and goal. 1 Timothy 1 verse 5, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience, and a sincere faith. So love, love for God and love for others, must be the beginning and the middle and the end. Love is indispensable. The second aspect we see of love in 1 Corinthians 13 then, is love's incomparability. So point two, the excellence of love is recognised by its incomparability. And what we should understand here is that Paul's not denying the value of spiritual gifts, but is helping us see their right standing behind the primacy of love. Spiritual gifts are truly important. They're blessings from God, but next to love, they are incomparable. We know this because all of 1 Corinthians 12 to 14 is on the correct use of gifts. What Paul wants us to see is that love is primary while the gifts are secondary. Moreover, he wants us to see that it's only when the gifts are used flowing out of the motivation and goal of love that the gifts become truly worthwhile. That's why love is incomparable to the gifts. So in 1 Corinthians 14 verse 1, Paul begins, pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts. The desire for gifts must follow behind love. Now, when Paul does say for the Corinthians to desire the spiritual gifts, he's not suggesting that believers are to desire 
the gifts for themselves as individuals. Because that would contradict what he said earlier in chapter 12, verse 11, that it's the Holy Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. Gifts are given under the sovereign determination of God alone. So no, it's not a desire for individual blessing, but to corporate blessing. (coughs) We can see that clearly at the end of chapter 12, where Paul says a very similar thing. Chapter 12, verse 31, he says, but earnestly desire the higher gifts. The list that precedes that statement is not gifts per se, but gifted persons. So chapter 12, verse 28, Paul says, Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? But earnestly desire the higher gifts. And so it's about earnestly desiring that God would bless the local church with gifted people. Whether that would be through the fruit of evangelism or through established believers moving newly into the area. And this corporate focus ties in with the incomparability of love. Paul's causing people to take their eyes off of themselves and to think of others. That's the whole reason that God blesses his church with spiritual gifts in the first place. Chapter 12, verse 7. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. The problem in Corinth was that some were exercising their spiritual gifts for their own personal edification rather than the edification, the the building up of those around them. In chapter 14, verse 26, Paul says this, What then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. Now, this verse is not simply acknowledging what happened in the early church uh, as the people gathered together for corporate worship. What we have here is Paul's indictment upon the believers in Corinth. It's true that these activities were taking place. However, Paul was describing the self-focus of the Corinthians. He's saying to them, look guys, the problem is you're all coming together with the desire of doing your own thing. Each one of you is coming along determined to do what you want Regardless. But that's not the way the corporate worship is to operate, says Paul. You you guys need to understand that everything in the church is to be done for building up. And you can't edify others if you're thinking about edifying yourselves. Back in verse 12, Paul states, So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. So love is incomparable to the gifts because gifts do not produce love. But love produces an environment where gifts can thrive. What's your mindset when you come together for corporate worship? Are you thinking about how to build others up? Or are you coming along with your own agenda, your own desire for what you're going to get out of the service rather than what you can seek to build others up in? Lord, we pray, convict us of those desires we have for self-promotion and self-edification. Lord, may you enable us to strive to excel in building up the church. So love is incomparable. 
The third aspect we see of love then is love's immensity. So point three. (coughs) The excellence of love is recognised by its immensity. In 1 Corinthians 13, verses 1 to 3, I want you to notice the hyperbole that Paul evokes to show the immensity and greatness of love. He says that love is not simply greater than speaking in the tongues of men, but of angels also. He says that love is not simply greater than prophecy, but of the ability to understand all mysteries and all knowledge. He says that love is not simply greater than faith, but faith so as to remove mountains. He says that love is not simply greater than the personal sacrifice of of giving away all one's possessions, but even of delivering up one's own body to the flames as a martyr. The greatness of these gifts and the greatness of these sacrifices are all dwarfed and overshadowed by the immensity of love. To get an even clearer picture of the wonder of love, we should look at what these gifts are. So that in understanding the greatness of these gifts, we might understand the even greater nature of love. (coughs) And so Paul begins with the gift of tongues. Now, over the past 100 years or so, it's been commonplace to think of the gift of tongues as being the ability to speak ecstatic utterances. But when we look at the text, the reality is that's not what the biblical gift is at all. No, the biblical gift of tongues was the extraordinary ability to speak in a real human language that was previously unknown by the speaker. The same Greek words were used by Paul to describe the gift of tongues that Luke used to describe the gift of tongues in the book of Acts, where it's perfectly clear that it was the gift of speaking in a real human language that was previously unknown by the speaker. Now, That's amazing to be able to do that, but Paul ramps it up even further by saying that even if he was able to speak in the tongues of angels, that too would not reach the stature of love. But what's Paul saying in this comparison? Well, prior to our glorification, believers are created lower than angels. When King David spoke of his surprise at the greatness of human beings, he said in Psalm 8 verses 4 and 5 what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor so in 1 corinthians 13 verse 1 paul's ramping things up by referring to the quality of the messenger not just speaking in the tongues of men but of angels too And his point is that even if he spoke with the authority of an angel, yet still had no love in his heart, then his words would remain utterly meaningless. That's how immense love is. Well, Paul then refers to the gift of prophecy. (coughs) And this was the ability to speak the very words of God. It's not preaching. Preaching proclaims and expounds God's word that he's already revealed. Prophecy, on the other hand, is to bring forth new revelation from God. Now, only in recent decades has the suggestion been made that New Testament prophecy differed from Old Testament prophecy in that Old Testament prophets spoke God's word without error, 
but New Testament prophets spoke God's word with a mixture of truth and error. And so in that sense, New Testament prophecy uh, was a lower form of prophecy than in the Old Testament. And that's how people can affirm that the gift is still operating today, because clearly, when we see prophecy being uttered in the modern church, it is rife with error. But the New Testament speaks of New Testament prophets using the same language as the Old Testament prophets. And so there's no indication whatsoever that it's a lesser form of prophecy. Now, the nature of prophecy as being the revelation of God's inerrant and infallible word is, in the context of 1 Corinthians 12 to 14, why it's understood as a higher gift than tongues. You see, tongues was actually a form of prophecy. On the day of Pentecost, Peter explained to the crowds what they were witnessing And he did so by quoting from the Old Testament prophet Joel. He said this in Acts 2.17. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Well, the tongues that the disciples spoke in were prophetic because there were those present who knew the languages that they were speaking. And we see a great list of the people present at the beginning of Acts 2. So tongues only became an effective avenue of prophetic revelation if there were people present who knew the language being spoken <coughs> or there were those present with the gift of interpreting tongues. Prophecy was considered a higher gift because it was immediately effective in conveying truth. And Paul builds upon this gift too by Speaking hypothetically of having the ability to understand all mysteries and all knowledge, not just certain things that God chose to reveal to to the prophet, but everything, all the mysteries, all knowledge. And even with the greatness of that profound ability, the value of his life would still equal nothing if love was absent. And the same goes, says Paul, if he had such faith so as to remove mountains... Now, he's not talking here about the kind of saving faith in Christ that all Christians possess, but the gift of special confidence and trust that God will act to bring blessing in difficult circumstances. And Paul's picking up on the words of our Lord who said to the disciples in Matthew 17, 20, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will move and nothing will be impossible to you. Such a grand display of faith equals nothing without love. And Paul finishes in verse 3 by describing the sacrificial act of giving away all that he has. And then he goes even further by saying, even if he delivered up his body to be burned, he says that without love for Christ and his people, such acts would achieve for him nothing. They would gain for him nothing at all. Now, there are countless stories of those who've, uh, who've given their lives away for others. But they're not looked upon by God as worth anything to that person's credit if they've not flowed out of a heart that has true affection to God and to those who belong to him. Now, I believe that since we have the full and final revelation of God's word as the 66 books of the Bible... 
the gifts of prophecy and gifts of tongues, which again was a form of prophecy, that these gifts have fulfilled their purposes and have not been operating since around the end of the first century after the last book of the Bible was written. However, when we understand the extraordinary nature of what Paul is describing in this passage, and then we recognise that however great these things are, they have no real value without love, then we see the greatness of love. That's the whole point of this passage, to show us how great and important love is. And this is the immensity of love. And that leads us to the final aspect about love that I want us to see tonight, which is love's incarnation. So point four, the excellence of love is recognised by its incarnation. Now, incarnation essentially means in the flesh or embodied. And of course, the embodiment of love is witnessed in the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who is true God and true man. Now, Paul doesn't make that point specifically in these verses of 1 Corinthians 13, but earlier in chapter 11, verse 1, he says something that drives us to that conclusion when he declares to the believers, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Paul was a role model for believers, calling them to imitate everything in him that demonstrated holiness and godliness. But who did Paul follow? Our Lord. In another letter, Paul lifts our eyes to see the love of God embodied in Jesus Christ and exhorts us to follow Christ's example. So Ephesians 5 verse 1 and 2, he says, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. The Apostle John tells us that God is love. Christ is the perfect example of God's love because he is God. He is the second person of the Trinity, the eternally begotten yet uncreated Son. God is love means that Christ is love. Listen to some of these key verses. John 1 verse 18 No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Colossians 2 verse 9. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Hebrews 1 verse 3. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. So when Paul calls us to imitate Christ, he's calling us to imitate love's incarnation. And what is love like? What did the eternal Son of God come into this world to do? Well, to his apostles who were vying for positions of authority, Jesus declared in Mark 10, 45, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. The Apostle John tells us that Christ's sacrifice on the cross was the greatest demonstration of God's love. 1 John three sixteen. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. John came to this conclusion by listening to the words that Christ uttered in his presence in the upper room. John fifteen, twelve to 13. This is my commandment, 
that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. And one of the clearest places in which the Apostle Paul demonstrates Christ's love and humility, his desire to raise others up at the expense of his own privileges, is in Philippians 2. And if you've got your Bibles there, please turn with me. I'd like to read the first 11 verses with you. Philippians 2 verses 1 to 11, Paul says, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, But in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father." And so Jesus laid down his prerogatives as the eternal son in order to purchase the redemption of all those he came to save. That right there is amazing grace and it is a very sweet sound indeed. This is a price that's been paid that we could never do. Only through faith in the perfect atoning work of Jesus Christ will a person experience the forgiveness of their sin and a declaration of righteous standing before holy God. Yet the loving desire behind this extraordinary act of grace is what believers are called to imitate in their daily lives through the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit. And make no mistake, this is what God is working in his people. Romans 8.29, Paul says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. The Father is conforming his children so that we might be made like our elder brother. And it's in Christ Jesus that we see love's incarnation. And drawing things to a close, let me remind us of how Jesus replied when he was asked what the greatest commandment was. Matthew 22, verses 37 to 40, we read this. And he said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Love for God and love for others are two sides of the same coin. We can't have one without the other. We can't say we love God but have no love for others. Neither can we say we love others but have no love for God. 
But our love in these spheres is contingent upon God's initial pouring out of his love into our hearts to enable us to hear and believe the gospel. The good news that God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. If you're here tonight and you don't and, and you've not come to the Father through faith in his son Jesus, then it matters not what you do in this life. It matters not how amazing, how sacrificial, how earnest your efforts have been. If there is not love in your heart for the true God, then by biblical mathematics, you have what amounts to zero. If you're here tonight and you've publicly professed faith in Christ, but your life does not reflect genuine love for others, then you are in the same boat as the person before. You just get up earlier on a Sunday morning. (coughs) To both, I plead, repent of your sin and turn to Christ. Receive for the first time the true love of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ and he will give you a heart to love others. To those who know the Lord and seek to love others but find it a struggle, I pray that Paul's words tonight will remind you of the excellence of love and that the Spirit would grow within you a deeper heart of love for all. Brothers and sisters, we need to pray that God would cause the greatness of love, the immensity of love, to capture our attention. That he would conform us to the image of his Son, that by our love for one another, the world would know that we belong to Christ, our Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that by your grace you have revealed your word to us through the scriptures. And as we look particularly tonight at the singular importance of love, love for you and love for others, the greatest commandments. Father, we thank you that we can only seek to follow those things by your initial love for us. And we pray if there are those here tonight that do not know you, that do not know your love, that you would by your grace convict them and enable them by the power of your spirit to turn to Christ in faith and repentance and that they would know your love and that you would pour out your love into their hearts. Father, for those of us that do know you, we pray that this, these words that uh, you inspired through the Apostle Paul, that in them we would have a grander picture of what love truly is. And we pray that over our, our next times together in, the, in these evening services as we look through the rest of this chapter, that you would, you would grow and expound what love is for us and that you would continue to conform us to the image of your Son each and every day and that you would grow in us a deeper heart of love for yourself and for others around us, especially our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Father, as we continue to grow in our love for you and for others, may you uh, bring a burden upon us to be able to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ to those who do not yet know your love in him. Again, we pray that the gospel would go forth from this place. And Father, 
by our love for one another, may people know that we belong to you. In Christ's name and for his glory we pray. Amen.